Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Bruce Garrick. Tonight, we have Brian Train, game designer and wargamer. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. So, Brian, um, you have been designing games for a long time. I assume you've been playing games for longer than that. Tell me, what was your first game, and how did you kind of get into the hobby? Well, the first war game I ever saw was about 1976, and I was at the my the home of my best friend, and uh, his older brother had a copy of SPI's old World War III game, so oh, wow. I happened to have a look at it when he had it set up, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think you've seen it. It's got a uh, whole map of the world and all yep. these mysterious looking counters, or they were mysterious to me then. But then all those mushroom clouds, mm-hmm. I think, oh, now what what is this? This is uh, a, you know, I'd always enjoyed board games. Um, you know, chess and risk and stuff like that. But uh, this was something new. But it wasn't until three or four years later, <clears throat> about 1978 or 79, that um, uh, one of my uncles sent me a copy of Tactics 2 for Christmas. Ah, okay. And that got me started. Uh, so I took to that right away. And then after that, um, there was uh, a store uh, in my town that sold uh, some war games. Uh, mm-hmm. They sold new and used ones. So that was where my pocket money went for the mm-hmm. next few years. I bought a lot of um, older stuff, smaller games, you know, the old SPI folios, things like that. Yeah. And so you obviously did that for a while. What got you to decide you wanted to actually design a game? Well, it wasn't very long before I decided or I found out that uh, people weren't really designing the kinds of games that I wanted to play. Uh, So there were, and and there seemed to be a few sort of situations I thought that would be, you know, pretty well ready-made for games. So it wasn't long after I started uh, playing that I started designing. The first one, technically the first one that I ever designed was when I was still in high school. Uh, it was in 81 or 82, and it was a game called Poussin Perimeter. Hmm. And there, uh, my, my dad had uh, a copy of the old uh, and very good history of the Korean War by Fehrenbach called This Kind of War. Oh, yeah. And this was an edition that had a lot of military maps in it with military symbols and things like that. And I was just fascinated by this when I was a kid because I would thumb through the maps and there was a guide to NATO symbols in the back of the book. So that's where I learned my NATO symbols. And um, there was one particular one page map in that in that book of the Busan perimeter, which you may recall, is is uh, the time for about six weeks at the very beginning of the Korean War when yep. the South Korean and American forces were all wedged down into a corner. Right. And to me, it looked like this, you know, this looks like just the, the right kind of thing that you'd set up. So I, um, I, I designed it. I, I put together a map with literally hand-drawn hexes because mm-hmm. I didn't have any access to right. hex paper. And uh, a computer... Um, um, I had no computer because this is 1982, uh, so this was just like counters, you know, on a grid uh, mm-hmm. with the numbers typed in, you know, right. uh, and uh, colored with pencil crayon and cut out and stuck to paper. And the rule system was sort of basic SPI, uh, you know, with a couple of ideas in it. I, I thought I had an interesting idea for something called a secondary zone of control, which is where a division size counter could, American division size counter could exert 
some kind of influence two hexes away instead of one. I thought mm-hmm. it was very clever and that I had invented this, but it wasn't <laughs> until years and years later that I found out that James Dunningan had done something like this when he was designing Baston back in 1969. Mm-hmm. So, but I didn't know that, so yeah. it was new to me. Um, so I never, um, I never published that one, uh, for, well, I didn't publish it for a long time. Uh, back about 1999 or 2000, Peter Schutze started Schutze Games Mm -hmm. and I sent him a cleaned up and much revised version of Poussin Perimeter and, uh, it's still on sale with him. Uh, you can get a boxed version of it now from, uh, Blue Panther Games, which is an outfit that he does business with in California. Oh, wow. And they so, do, uh, yeah, they, they uh, have taken a number of his games, which were like old DTP, you know, he would sell them in DTP format. Mm-hmm. But with some games, um, they're sold through Blue Panther, and he gives them a, a little box and uh, fairly nice die-cut counters, good map art, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you can still get copies nowadays. And that was 1982. But the first real games about things, that topics that I was really interested in, didn't mm-hmm. come in until about 1991. Um, in 1991, I was in Japan, and I was doing the Teach English bit, and I was there, uh, but I didn't have any of my games with me. I mean, once in a while, you know, my mom would send over my subscription copy of Strategy and Tactics uh-huh. or Command or whatever, because Command magazine was just getting started back then. Yep. And um, I would uh, I would play those, but there still wasn't anything that I really wanted to play on, on topics that I was really interested in. So in 1991, I designed Civil Power, which was a tactical game about uh, riots mm. and, uh, you know, making riots and breaking riots. And it's just got like a geomorphic uh, yeah, sort of a, a system, a, a map of a uh, sort of a generic city. And it's sort of like squad to mob size for the counters. And I, I wrote up all kinds of scenarios for it, you know, for different kinds of riots and, the, uh, you know, a Warsaw, you know, 1944 scenario, you know, things like that. Um, and that was actually inspired um, by an essay by Hunter S. Thompson. Because <laughs> really? Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson, he used to write for Rolling Stone. Right. He'd write these insane um, articles for Rolling Stone under the uh, pen name of Raoul Duke. Sure, which is Gonzo where the journalism. Uncle- that's where the Uncle Duke character comes from in, in Doonesbury. Um, and he wrote this really savage essay uh, called The Police Chief. And it's all about, you know, all these Baroque uh, weapons, you know, that the uh, police had to deal with, you know, had, had to deal with rioters and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I thought, oh, maybe why don't I do a tactical game on that? Um, and then uh, the year, well, about the same time, I designed a game called Power Play, which was a, uh, a game about a coup d'etat in hmm. a generic, you know, imaginary country, a very simple game that you played with a uh, with a, uh, a deck of ordinary playing cards and hmm. a very small game, you know, less than 50 counters. Had you and played Junta at that point? No, I see. This is the thing. I had never played any of these kinds of games um, because, you know, in the 80s, I didn't have access to a lot of of, of games. There was no internet, so the, nobody was trading them. If no one in, in your town had it, you mm-hmm. never even heard about it, unless you had a couple of, of you know books which would just tell you something tantalizing about it. So no way to see these things or how they had designed them. Like, for example, this game Power Play. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know, actually it was inspired by a movie uh, that was made in 1978, a weird movie um, uh, that was made in Canada. Uh, and it starred like Peter O'Toole and David Hemmings, 
uh, as army officers plotting a coup in this imaginary country. And Donald Pleasance was like the head of secret police, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty good role for him. Anyway, I happened to see this movie when I was in Japan. And I thought that uh, this would actually make a good, you know, this would be a good setting for a game, too, because I'd always been interested in, in the coup d'etat. And uh, ever since I was in high school, you know, and I'd read a book about the coup d'etat by a guy called Edward Lutlock. And uh, I thought that that would be a, a good uh, topic for a game. And just something that would be very simple, would play very quickly, that sort of thing. So uh, over the years, I've, uh, you know, shopped that thing around. It's, it's been available. It was another one that's available through Schutze Games. Lately, I have redone it as a multiplayer game with hidden information and hidden agendas, mm -hmm. uh, retitled at Palace Coup. I'm, I'm going to publish that either myself or with somebody else. Okay. But anyway, it's, it's, it's a topic that, that I found interesting. So as you say, as you asked me if I played Junta, the thing is, is that I hadn't. Um, I mean, I had had exposure to a lot of sort of conventional war games, mm -hmm. but I hadn't played any of the sort of political or asymmetric type conflicts mm -hmm. that I would I, I would design games on later. And number one, it was because, you know, anything there, there weren't very many of these games to begin with. Uh, it was not a pop popular topic, and it still isn't really a popular topic when you look at the gross numbers of board games that are being produced every year now. And um, they were where they were published. They were published by small outfits, so you know, produced in small numbers, obscure companies, and very hard to get a hold of. So um, I was off in Japan, and I started rolling my own. Uh, I came home from Japan in 1992, mm -hmm. and after a year or two, um, get myself set up domestically, I started to design again. So by 1994, I was starting to design more and more games on guerrilla warfare, irregular warfare, whatever you want to call it. It's had so many different names over the years. I'll just call it irregular warfare. Mm -hmm. um, but 1994-95 is the time that I designed Tupamaro, which is a game about urban guerrillas in Uruguay from the 60s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shining Path, which is about the Sendero Luminoso uh, guerrillas in, in Peru, uh, and so on. Wow, so you really uh, decided that once you got to your, once you got set up and you're going to start designing games, it was going to be about asymmetric warfare. What is it about that kind of thing? You Obviously, you didn't start designing Battle of the Bulge games or D-Day games. Um, what drew you to that particular topic? Yeah, well, it's true, actually, that, you know, my very first war game, you know, the the Pusan Perimeter one, even then it wasn't, you know, it, it was it was a conventional war game, but it wasn't a usual topic. Nobody had ever designed a game just on Pusan Perimeter before. So I, had this, I was sort of like driven to touch these topics that no one had ever done, even when uh, I was giving them a conventional treatment. So it was, uh, I, I think it was just to, you know, to, to try new things in new ways uh, and to touch on topics that people hadn't done before. And because I felt that um, this was a whole dimension of conflict, a whole dimension of war, especially post-World War II, that war games had really just given the cold shoulder to. I mean, there's, there, you know, even in the 90s, by the 90s, there were, they had tried all kinds of different methods of modeling conventional warfare. And there had even been a few ones, uh, uh, games, modern warfare games that had gone into some interesting aspects of uh, command and control and morale. You think of uh, John Hill's Tank Leader series, for example, uh, which is, to my mind, is sort of the software, the armature of making these things tick. 
but there still seem to be a lot of war gamers who are still really married to the hardware. Uh, like an example of that was, you know, Avalon Hill's old Tobruk game. I mean, it's mm -hmm. an older game, but, you know, there are a lot of other examples, yeah. which was more or less, you know, I thought it was always like a miniatures instead of miniatures rules transferred to a board game, but concentrating almost exclusively on angles and, you know, ammunition types and mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. But it, it really didn't. I mean, weapons are important, but. What's more important, was always more important to me, was the will behind the weapon uh, and the will to use a weapon or not use it and the way that it's being used. And that's what I always found interesting, especially how politics influenced, you know, conflict uh, was responsible for so many uh, events and decisions and campaigns that made no real sense, you know, logically, militarily, logistically, but were launched for sound, well, well what people believed at the time were sound um, psychological and political reasons, because that's, that's how it is. So talk to me about a little bit about your, um, your, your basic system. I feel that you have sort of a basic system for counterinsurgency operations that flows through a lot of your games, at least the games that that specifically talked the ones you talked about the you know the shining path or mm -hmm. uh you call it um special forces operations in the central highlands in uh, vietnam or the greek civil war you have i think the only place i've ever seen a greek civil war game uh, is uh your game called Andartes. Mm -hmm. um and then you have uh, a game about algeria mm -hmm. um and then you have uh I mean, you have so many games. There's a, a game you made called Kandahar, which I just picked up and very interested uh, to play Good. that uh, deals with uh, the situation in Afghanistan. So all these games, though, seem to share a common system in which, uh, for our listeners, it's it's very much about the—there's the, there's, there's almost—the the, uh, the amount of detail in the combat system itself is 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 not really that that's not where the focus is just like you said you know you're you're not so much about the weapons you're about the the will to use more of the ability i would say the ability to use them because what you have is a series of four boxes where you have uh, units that are underground then there's an operations box and there's an operations complete box and a patrol box and all of the units in a given space occupy one of these four boxes and the whole point it seems to me is that the um the insurgent forces go from the underground box try to um complete operations such as you know um, influencing the population in some way or you know through terror or or um ambushing troops things like that um they try to go from the underground box to the operations complete box um and then get back underground before, you know, by the time the next turn starts. Once they're out of the underground box, they're sort of vulnerable to the um, to the government player, whatever you want, the conventional player. And uh, the government player can also use his forces to move those units from the underground box to the to operations complete box because um, that's the only way that they become sort of accessible to him and um it's this it's this sort of dance uh you you have a large board and then you're trying to take your forces if you're the if you're the insurgent you kind of spread them out and you're trying to keep you're, you're operating in areas where the government isn't and the government's trying to sort of move around and catch you um it does a number of things i think the the most um the the, the most notable thing that it does is it tries to solve the problem of hidden information by having units that are sort of inaccessible or at least uh, uh, 
minimally accessible by being underground. Um, otherwise, you know, you've you have all these systems where, you know, you can hide your units or, you know, plot things. You you make it very easy for the players to set up and look at the board and get the information. But um, talk to me a little bit about how you decide, because it's a very unusual system. It's not a system that I've really seen anywhere else. How did you, how did you put that together? And how why did you feel that that was the way that you wanted to represent uh, the um, operations and the games that you were going to design? Well, thanks, Bruce. That's a very good description of how that system works. And, and do you know something? I, I've never known what exactly to call it, uh, I, but you call it the four-box ops system, and I think that's maybe what I ought to call it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's a funny thing. You know, I've got about 40 game designs that are all published or you know will be published you know at some point in the very near future, and maybe – Half of them don't have anything to do with guerrilla warfare at all, mm-hmm. but I have this reputation for doing unusual topics, but especially irregular warfare, or asymmetric warfare, whatever you want to call it. And the four box system that you're talking about is something that I've used in, I guess, about five games because it's I call it a family of games because they have developed over time. Um, the first in that series was Tupamaro. Uh, which, as I said, I designed back in about 1994, 95. So, geez, 20 years ago now was the first one. And it was, at the time, I had been uh, studying uh, and writing a very long article for Strategy and Tactics on Urban Guerrilla Warfare. Uh, that was one of the first articles I had published in, in, in the magazine, and I've been writing for them, you know, ever since. And in this, in, in, in the process of, of, of um of researching this, uh, I sometimes when I'm writing an article and I run into a writer's block, I will design a game as a form of creative procrastination. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I like uh, another time I did this. I was uh, writing an article on the 1848 revolutions uh, in Europe, and I just ran into this block. So I designed a game to kind of like you know divert my attention and get back to work on it. About the about the eighteen forty eight revolutions or just a game? Uh, about the eighteen forty eight revolutions. Okay. Because what it did was it helped me to kind of think of the research that I've been doing and to set it out and make a model of it and think, okay, how I've been reading about this in the histories, but how important was it really? How important was it to the you know the ultimate outcome? And uh, that helped me to kind of get a, a sense of proportion on things. And actually, that was um, the only game I've ever designed on anything that happened before 1918. <laughs> so <laughs> really? everything I've, I've worked on has been after 1918, with the exception of one 1848 game, which I, you know, have only recently, you know, allowed to sell by myself. You know, mm. it's, um, it's, it's, it was something that, uh, you know, it's something that only a Brian trained completist would want, I think. <laughs> um, okay. And it sounds like you're on your way to being a completist. So you'll uh, that, yeah, I'm going to be one copy. of those. Yep, I'm going to be paying. I'm going to be sending a check real soon. I think. Um, so but, yeah, so um, let's talk about the talk about the system some more. I'm, I'm fascinated. Yes. Um, so anyway, um, I, I worked uh, on, on this uh, on, on this idea of the Tupamaro urban guerrillas. Now you know that Uruguay is a very very small country. And most mm-hmm. of the people in Uruguay live in the capital city, which is Montevideo. Mm-hmm. At the time, this is like 1968 to 1972 is when the Tupamaros were most active, mm-hmm. is Montevideo had a population of about one and a half million people, or it was about the size of Phoenix, Arizona. Mm. So you had this whole political military 
urban guerrilla movement with a political dimension. Uh, you had it, it was created, it flourished, uh, threatened the state and was crushed all in the space of about four or five years inside, essentially inside one city, the size of Phoenix. So when I was sitting down to make this game, I, uh, I, I, the first thing I dispensed with was the idea of a, of a standard map. Hmm. Because when you're dealing with such a small area with a, you know, a very indeterminate scale of action, uh, because the kind of the scale of action that you're dealing with is not individual incidents, but strings of incidents, you know, strings of bank robberies or kidnappings or, you know, demonstrations, these kinds of things, you know, either bunches of little ones or, you know, or little ones that are building up to big ones. So you don't really run into the time and space dilemmas that you mm -hmm. do with conventional war games where people okay. figure out, OK, um, you know, I want my game to be 12 turns long and I want my forces to be able to reach Moscow from the Polish border, you know, within six turns. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I don't have much of a game. So all those kind of time and space things, that's not important um, when you're dealing with this scale of indeterminate action. Uh in a very circumscribed physical area. So time and space doesn't matter that much. Instead of a standard map of neighborhoods and roads and things like that, what I put together was a map of social sector areas. Hmm. So you had um, uh, like an area that was sort of like bureaucrats, you know, like, like government ministries, okay. uh, banks, uh, the army barracks, uh, the university, uh, you know, the, the industrial area, things like that. And these were actually sort of slices of the population of the city, of, of influential segments of the population. University, because the university students and the academics and intellectuals, you know, they, they, they furnished a lot of the opposition to the government. Mm -hmm. uh, the army barracks, because, um, the, you know, the Tupamaros successfully subverted large numbers of, of, uh, of soldiers. Um, and also uh, the barracks was where you had the prison. So when you eliminated, uh, when the government eliminated a Tupamaro fire team, he had a chance of killing them outright or putting them in prison. If he had them in prison, then that counted against the, um, the Tupamaros politically. However, there was always a chance that he might try a prison break and liberate, mm. you know, so there's a, you know, back and forth like that. Okay. And what happened was you had this map and then you had uh, an, another sort of, a sheet of holding boxes called the underground zone uh, for the for the Tupamaro, and then the uh, the manpower pool or whatever I can't I think the something pool for okay. the government. Uh, and what happened was people would deploy from the underground zone to different sectors on the map, either to conduct missions to against the government, or the government would uh, would um, would deploy to the map in sort of anticipation of, of uh, the um, of, of the Tupamaros doing one thing or another. So this represented putting cops and soldiers out in the streets, you know, guarding installations and that kind of thing. Um, so that didn't sit too well with a couple of players because they didn't like the idea that after every turn you cleaned whatever there was on the map off and stuck it back in the underground zone and then next turn you just repeat the whole thing again. Mm -hmm. Because here they were stuck, okay, maybe they could accept the idea that the map was not a straight out representation of physical terrain, but they were still stuck in the idea of occupying and keeping physical terrain, you know, a chunk of the paper map. You know, okay. I, I sort of like, I fought for this little corner of the paper map. I should mm -hmm. be able to keep it from turn to turn. And, you know, they just thought it was a little bit fiddly for that, but 
you know, I mean, to each his own. But anyway, that was how I modeled it. And okay. that was where the genesis came for the idea of uh, the the four box system, because the one that I I, um, I designed after Tupamaro that followed on was Shining Path. Now, with Shining Path, this was a map of the whole of Peru with different areas that were graded into urban, uh, rural, or remote, uh, you know, remotes like jungle, and urban, of course, is a big city. And instead of having uh, one sort of underground zone where you deployed onto the map, every area had a, its own little underground zone and its own little operation zone, which is where you deployed in anticipation of doing something. And once you had done something, uh, then there was the operations completed zone, which is where you've done something, you've partially exposed yourself, uh, and you're unavailable to do anything else right during that cycle. And then for the government, they had uh, a, an area where they could preemptively uh, deploy troops in, in a patrol zone, uh, which interfered with some of the rebel operations. And of course, when they eventually get around to doing something, you can react out of the patrol zone. But once you've reacted to it, you're not patrolling anymore. So <clears throat> that's how that worked. Uh, it, so each area on the map, which was now represented a physical area, had like a miniature of this four box system. And the one that came after Shining Path was Algeria. And um, that one was essentially the same system, except as time went on, you know, and I changed the different, uh, you know, the different situation, the form of the game would change as well. The basic form was always the same, and you've described it very well. Um, but there would be different types of missions uh, that would be added as mm -hmm. time would go on, and others would be dropped depending on the particular circumstances. So one important change for Algeria, uh, for example, was uh, two, two major changes were, one, that it was a colonial situation. Like mm -hmm. the situation in Peru was a, a, an internal war, an internal civil war against mm -hmm. a strictly domestic, um, uh, you know, a guerrilla movement because nobody right. ever helped the Sendero Luminoso from outside. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, because they're crazy, essentially. Um, right. But so they didn't get any kind of international engagement or international aid. Uh, and they operated entirely within Peru. They did not have a foreign sanctuary, which has been a mark of a lot of guerrilla warfares, uh, guerrilla wars in, in, um, in, in, in history. So with Algeria, number one, it was a colonial situation where you had the French government trying to maintain, you know, essentially a colonial uh, presence, even though technically and legally Algeria was part of France. Um, but essentially they're trying to maintain a colony against a, a homegrown nationalist uh, you know, uh, force that still managed to have two uh, foreign sanctuaries in Morocco and Tunisia. Once these groups, uh, th these two countries were, they were uh, French, um, not quite colonies, but protectorates. And they were given their independence early on uh, in the um, in, in the Algerian War, and of course the FLN, the insurgents, very promptly turned them into um, into uh, foreign sanctuaries. So that was another feature uh, that that changed things. The other thing that changed things was because it was a colonial situation, um, the question of political support for one side or the other also changed. In uh, Tupamaro and Shining Path, both sides have something called a political support level. Uh, which is just a general 
I, you know, it's measured in political support points. And if you, if it's very high, you can do more things. If it's low, you can do other things. You, you know, there's things you can't do or you can't do them as well. But when one side's political support level hits zero, the game's over. Your movement or your government has collapsed. There's some kind of great shift or halt in the, and anyway, for you, the vote is over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, France, that didn't really, sorry, in Algeria, from the point of view of France, that didn't really matter. Um, So the political support level for the French player in Algeria is just a, it's a measure of how much patience and uh, time and resources the civilian government and the higher elements of the army uh, or military are willing to extend the guy who's running the show in Algeria. Whereas for the FLN, it's a more standard you know, a uh, measure of, of how people see them as the most legitimate, uh, you know, organization to carry uh, Algeria through to independence and become its government after independence. So that was a very important um, distinction between Shining Path and Algeria. Um, and then the, the game that followed after Algeria a few years later was Greek Civil War, uh, which is now out as Andartes. That was interesting because that's a change yet again. It was an internal civil war uh, where you have um, the communist guerrillas, the DSE, for, against the, uh, the royal Greek government. Uh, but this time, the guerrillas do have several foreign sanctuaries in Yugoslavia and Bulgaria and Albania. And you have some interests uh, deployed um, by um, uh, different countries. So, for example, if the Greek government is losing the war, if he's doing very badly, you know, in terms of political support, or, or rather the the, the, re- the rebel is doing too well, then the United States will become involved, you know, in, in terms of supplying and improving the, the Greek government's forces. So both sides are kind of, you know, they've got an eye on outside events as well while they're going through the game. So that's... Uh, so you can see how that the system has kind of evolved over over time. Um, I, and I've done the same thing. Uh, I've applied this as well to Kandahar. Uh, and there's another game which I haven't published yet. Um, I'm about done with the artwork, and I just need to test a little bit more, called mm-hmm. Aoka. And Aoka? Aoka. How do you spell uh, that? E-O-K-A. But you have E-O- to do it in Greek letters. Ah, okay. Because it stands for... Ethnikos, uh, I don't know the Greek. I'm, anyway, okay. it's, it, it's, it was the name, I can't recall the Greek right now, but it, it mm-hmm. is the, the, uh, it's a game on the Cyprus emergency of 1955 ah, to 1959, okay. which again was a very interesting uh, conflict because you had uh, the Cypriot Greeks and the Cypriot Turks who were not coexisting very well on this very small physically circumscribed island. You had the interference of the Greek government. You had a little bit of interference from the Turkish government. But more than that, you have the British colonial authority trying to maintain order in the face of a ticking clock that is more or less winding down and bringing Cyprus towards some kind of independence or some kind of movement away from being a colony of the crown. Oh, this so this is a this is a this is the Cypriot emergency. This is not the uh, Turkish invasion of of Cyprus. No, that came in 1974. Yeah. This is right, 1955 right. to 59. Gotcha. Okay. And nobody has ever done a game on on this, obviously. Uh, yeah. But this is uh, another yet another um, adaptation of of this four box system. You've got mm-hmm. um, you know the map that's divided into areas. We've got the four boxes in each one. 
but you have an awful lot more moving parts uh, within the game because there are, you know, many other factors at play. And the British government, you know, has to be, he, he kind of, he's, he's at war with the, with the guerrillas, but he doesn't really have the full support of his own government either. So hmm. he's always in the position of, of trying to extract more or enough resources. There's also the question of use of violence. Um, mm -hmm. And the lasting effects of, you know, using too much violence uh, in an area. This is a concept that I've applied in several of my games over the last few years. Um, so anyway, I think it's interesting. The thing is, the problem is, though, is that, you know, hardly anybody has heard about it. It's not even a popular topic among British people. <laughs> um, I was at a, a professional military, military gaming conference a couple of years ago in London and had a copy of this to show to people. And, you know, I think one guy came along and said, oh, my grandfather was there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nice. His grandfather was, you know, a conscript or whatever and served uh -huh. his time in Cyprus. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that's pretty much it. It doesn't really resonate with him. However, I find it, you know, uh, it's, it's a very interesting sort of like a little laboratory almost because you had this little island that takes like an hour or two to drive from one end to the other. Mm -hmm. So it's like a very circumscribed area. Yet within it, a very small number of urban guerrillas, for the most part, ran rings around, you know, some of the best units the British Army had to to deploy. Hmm. So anyway, um, that's sort of. Uh, I'm sorry for going on at such length. No, that that's is, great. That's exactly that is what the I want to hear. Evolution of the system. Yeah. And you're asking what what am I trying to model in this system? What I'm trying to model in the four box system is just essentially postures. Um, the underground zone is not inviolable, as you said. Uh, because the government player can do intelligence missions, uh, which can shove them out of the underground and bring them out into the light where mm -hmm. they're vulnerable to government, later government operations. But the idea is that underground is a place where you go when, you know, you're, when you're not actually about to do something. The operation zone is where you deploy when you're about to do something. And for the government, it's where you're holding forces in readiness, you know, to do something against mm -hmm. the insurgent forces that have are, that may uh, that are about to do something or you know have just done something, because every time the uh, the insurgent does something, the government player has a chance to react to it, and so he can react to you know because the government the insurgent has kind of tipped his hand you know does a bank robbery robbery or a propaganda campaign or an ambush or something like that, and then the the government player has a chance to react to that. Uh, but if he's unsuccessful, then, you know, they go to the operations completed area and then, you know, they cycle back to the underground. And, of course, I've worked, you know, um, I've worked variations on this as well for when the guerrillas are moving from one area of the country to another. Um, and in Kandahar, for example, I had the idea, introduced the idea of non-kinetic and kinetic missions. Yep. A non-kinetic being uh, like a, a propaganda, you know, propaganda or subversion, trying to subvert the government forces or that sort of thing. Because the government player in the Kandahar game is not the NATO commander. He's the Afghan security forces commander. So right. he has ISAF NATO forces that are not always under his control. They don't always do what it, you know, they want him to, but he mm -hmm. needs them to be around. At the same time, though, he's trying to, to cope with, you know, uh, with a very demoralized army and a demoralized and incompetent police force. Uh, so that's, that's liable to be subverted by the, uh, by the insurgents. So 
but still there are non-kinetic and kinetic things. You can't, you, you can't take a mechanized battalion and run it through a village just because some leaflets got scattered around. You know, that's that's an unreasonable you know response to this sort of thing. So you right. can't react to something like that. However, if somebody sets off an IED in the Saturday marketplace, then, you you know, that's something that you can react to in a kinetic way. So a kinetic act gets a kinetic reaction. Interesting. Yeah. And the other point with this four box system is that at all times, the insurgent has what you would call the tactical initiative. Uh, he's the one who decides in any given area whether he's going to be the one, the next one to do an operation. So he can say, I'm going to take the next operation. Or he can tell the government player, okay, you do the next thing and waiting for him to do something. And if he passes, well, then the other one, uh, then, then the rebel, uh, the insurgent can say, well, I pass too. And that ends things. So for the turn, for the turn. Yeah. So the government has to be careful because, you know, he, you know, he may be caught off balance because he wanted to play the waiting game a little bit longer, and then suddenly, oh, sorry, turns it over, you mm-hmm. know, and then you go back into the cycle again. So right. there's a potential. So the, like the the the, the 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 insurgent has the sort of like the tactical. Like a, there's a term in Go called sente, where you are the one who is making the moves uh, that the other guy is reacting to, mm-hmm. and you can carry on with that for a while, um, and. But there comes a time when, you know, you, you, you've done what you wanted to and you, then you kind of yield to the other guy. Um, but this mixes it up a little bit more uh, so that you can have a little bit more suspense and do a little bit here, or a little bit there. And then, you know, bust out someplace else while you've diverted the attention of the government player at the other end of the map. So you do have a, a, a chance to mix it up that way. So that leads me to my you know, next question, which is the coin system which obviously is a is a system designed specifically to model, you know, asymmetric guerrilla warfare. And you happen to be working on a game in the coin system, and it's uh, an Algeria game that uh, uh, I've already pre-ordered, and it's already made uh, its uh, quota of uh, 500 pre-orders on, um, on Project 500 by GMT. So GMT, will, you know, has committed to producing your game. But... Um, that's a very different system for, for the uh, listeners. It's called Colonial Twilight. So if you want to uh, look up Colonial Twilight on GMT Games, it's actually a two-player coin game. And uh, the coin system has traditionally, you know, the, just name the ones that uh, that are out now that, you know, for the, um, the games uh, include, uh, well, I guess Labyrinth isn't really the coin system itself, but uh, Distant Plane, then Cuba Libre, um, the uh, Andean Abyss, obviously. Um, uh, after that came uh, Fire in the Lake, which just uh, came out not too long ago about the war in Vietnam. And uh, there's going to be a game about um, the American Revolution. There's a Gallic uh, Revolt kind of uh, game. And uh, those are all both in production. And now you're Colonial Twilight. So Colon- um, the coin system is, uh, is very different from your system. It is more of a you know move the units in in control terrain kind of thing, and there's a, there's there are cards there you know there are obviously no cards in your four box op system. How did that change uh, affect your design, and what do you think about the different sort of pros and cons of the two systems? Since you're you know one you've done a lot of games uh, that were your design, and now you're sort of taking another design and trying to adapt it to a situation you've already covered, which is Algeria? Well, it's, it's 
again, here's another interesting confluence, um, because I am partially responsible for the coin system. Ah, uh, it, oh, so I didn't, did you design the system? Because I, I know that you had worked on, um, I did not, uh, you, on distant plane, mm-hmm. but did you actually end up designing the system f- uh, with, uh, with Volco? No, I did not design the system, but mm-hmm. I partially inspired the coin system. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you the story of how that came to be, if, if you want to fit that in. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, um, I, we were talking about my Algeria game, which was published uh, by the Microgame Design Group in 2000. And it was republished uh, in a tin box, later a card box, later by Fiery Dragon Productions, which is a Toronto game publisher. Um, at the end of 2007, I was contacted by a person who works in what was at the time was called the Program Analysis and Evaluation Office of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. <clears throat> this is like a fall you know, of 2007. Okay, of Canada? Of the United States. The United States. Yeah. Uh, and he... Uh, was writing to me because he had taken my Algeria game. He had found a copy of my Algeria game, and he was using it as kind of the framework for his work on trying to put together a game that modeled aspects of the Iraqi insurgency. Hmm. And this guy happened to be a member of the Military Operations Research Society, or MORS. Mm-hmm. MORS at the time was going to have a special... Um, meeting or special workshop on modeling um, irregular warfare. And how would I like to attend? Because he was going to give a presentation on his work. And so I said, boy, would I? Uh, And it turned out that uh, I met these people uh, in in the Military Operations Research Society. Um, I he, he gave his presentation. I ended up giving a presentation myself on what I was doing to a room full of, well, I called it the cornfield because there were so many colonels there. Yeah. And because um, <laughs> that it seemed to be the usual rank, you know, when they get involved in these kinds of things yeah. about, you know, how I you know, went about modeling irregular warfare. Like I, I was explaining to them much as I explained to, to you about how and why I designed Tupamaro and the Algeria system, that kind of thing. And there was also a play of a game uh, where someone had taken the Algeria system and given it a fictional uh, setting uh, in some islands in the South Pacific. And he called it Exercise Ginger Junction. Hmm. And um, the two different forces were, well, the insurgent forces were all, the government was the government, but the insurgent forces were all named after uh, characters in, from Gilligan's Island. So the insurgent okay. leader was this shadowy figure known only as the skipper, oh, that's you know, funny. and uh, the capital city was called Marianne and stuff uh-huh. like that. Okay. It was, it was kind of funny, except that there were a bunch of um, British and Australian guys at the conference as well. And they didn't and get it. They didn't get it at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Still, it was funny. Um, but anyway, he had just taken the, the bare bones, you know, of, of that system and then had put it into this sort of fictional setting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, while I was there at this conference, I happened to meet someone uh, who happens to work at the same place as Volko Runka does. Volko is an analyst with mm-hmm. CIA, or mm-hmm. actually, no, to put it more accurately, he is a teacher for the CIA. Mm-hmm. When you join the CIA, you do a course of training um, at a place called the Sherman Kent School. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Volko 
is a teacher at this school. He's a very mm-hmm. good teacher. He's a very good speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, far better than I am. <laughs> and his colleague, who I met at this conference, went back at, after having played through you know these Algeria games and so forth, and told Volko about this Algeria game. Um, and because Volko at the time had done Wilderness War, and I think he was working on or had completed Labyrinth at the time. Okay. So he got his hands on this Algeria game, and uh, he t- took some of the aspects of Labyrinth, which is a partly card-driven game. It's it's a like Labyrinth is you have a hand of cards and you make selections out of it, right. uh, and then he took some of the asymmetries that you find in the Algeria system because. In the Algeria system, there's a great asymmetry in the numbers and types of missions and how they're conducted in their ultimate effects uh, between the government and the insurgent. So he took the idea of asymmetry between factions, uh, of of their means, of their methods, uh, and their objectives, uh, and he worked that into a four-faction setup uh, for Ende and Abyss because, you know, my earlier you know, insurgency games, uh, they were just two-player. But, of course, as we all know, there's always more than, than, than just two factions involved. Even if there are only two tendencies, there are always factions within those tendencies. So in designing and Day and Abyss, he took some of, to me, it seems he took some of Labyrinth uh, with the card part, uh, and he took some of, you know, the, this four-box operation system that I had, you know, with Algeria, and added more of his own because the system is, you know, his own design. Uh, and uh, that's how he produced the coin system, as it was in Ende and Abyss. And, you know, he's very, like, Volko is, Volko is a wonderful person, and he always gives intellectual uh, credit to intellectual debt when it's due. So I was very surprised. Like, I play-tested Ante and Abyss um, a year or two before it came out. Um, and I, th- I thought, okay, this is a really interesting way that he's done these things. Uh, but at the time, I didn't quite make the connection, you know, between that and Algeria. But it wasn't until I saw the Ante and Abyss rulebook where he name-checks me in the designer's notes that I was, you know, the partial inspiration for the coin system. But I thought, well, isn't that nice? And I'm really glad that I, you know, that I contributed uh, in the beginning to sort of some of the concepts that went into the coin system. Maybe it's a little, perhaps it's a little strong for me to say I'm partially responsible for the coin system. Um, maybe I ought to withdraw that. But, you know, <laughs> there's, there's I, at least I, I, I gave him a few ideas. Okay. And well, a year you... or two after yeah. Day and Abyss right. came out, uh, Volko and I worked together on a distant plane. Right, you know? the uh, Afghanistan game. That's right. So, you know, we clicked really quickly on that. It was a joy to work on that with him because uh, I think we're really on the way, same wavelength on a lot of things. And a distant plane is still, I think people still give it a lot of attention. You know, it's like Fire in the Lake, which came after, you know, is a, like people, I think Americans identify much more strongly with Fire in the Lake. And of course, Volko was working with Mark Herman, who is just a game design genius in, yep. in my view. So how could you miss with something like that? Okay. But a distant plane uh, for people who, you know, like the sort of like more modern ones. Uh, and it gives, you know, the four factions in a distant plane have some very interesting asymmetries uh, between them uh, that I think keeps people coming back to explore games of a distant plane again and again, like mm-hmm. they do with all the coin faction, uh, right. with all the coin games so far. Now, um, 
after a distant plane came out a year or two a year or so after it came out i was at the consum world expo uh in tempe uh i go most years and gene billingsley and mark simonich uh sat down with me and they asked um we think it would be a good idea uh if uh there were a coin system game on the algerian war and how would you like to be the guy who does it mm-hmm. and i said sure and mm-hmm. i put it together and it became colonial twilight and as you pointed out uh it's uh it's recently went past its 500 mark i think pre-orders are up around 540 uh they probably won't pull the trigger on production until it's around 700 uh because the P500 model was created at a time when they were pretty sure that they needed 500 pre-orders before they would lose their shirt um but uh things paper surprisingly has become much more expensive uh over the in the years since then interesting and so you know the the real trigger point for like they've honored 500 as okay we're going to do this mm-hmm. uh but when they do something when they actually slot it into the production pipeline mm-hmm. depends on it reaching a, a somewhat higher point of actual pre-orders Got it. so it will get there eventually i mean it made its p500 point in about um you know 6 7 weeks yeah. which i thought was pretty good <laughs> yeah it was great i mean there's yeah. games i've had sitting on the p500 list for years yeah. months actually but not about years but definitely over a year so um yeah that was very impressive I mean, and I'm glad because I wanted to come out as soon as possible yeah and well i think you know a certain fraction of those pre-orders were standing pre-orders uh, i believe there's a number of people who have standing orders with GMT for sign me up for anything with the coin system yes there you have those yes mm-hmm. it's very popular right now Right. um the algerian war doing something in the algerian war that might have drawn a few people in because you know of the sort of resonance between you know it's sort of an is it's it's an islamic insurgency mm-hmm. uh and my name might have sold five or six copies <laughs> i was gratified you know that i didn't have to ask my mom to do a pre-order you know just to get the numbers up so i was grateful for that <laughs> but yeah. the challenge the main design challenge with um with the colonial twilight was changing it from a four faction model to a two faction model. Yes. I you know, I I studied it and I thought about it for a long time and in the end it seemed to me that the Algerian war had a lot of small factions, smaller factions in it on both sides. Mm-hmm. But none of them were strong enough or active enough or consistently strong or active enough in their own right. throughout the period of the war of the insurgency which was like mm-hmm. eight years long um to the point where they were really viable third and fourth factions so instead i converted it to a two faction model and a lot of the effects of those third and people that you might consider as being those third and fourth factions so the pnr you know who are like the far right wing uh right. white settlers uh yep. in algeria they're not french but they're not Algerian they're not like they're not native Algerians either. Right. Uh and yet their families have lived there for you know 150 years. Mm-hmm. Um their 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 sort of effect is modeled in a number of uh, decks uh, cards in the event card deck. Mm-hmm. Uh the FLN was the strongest uh insurgent movement but they faced a fair amount of political and sometimes military uh opposition from other nationalist movements that were mm-hmm. active 
uh, right. inside Algeria and inside France as well. There was another uh, outfit called the MNA, or Mouvement National Algerien, mm-hmm. which was kind of muscled out of the, the military play in Algeria itself. But politically, they were very, very active among the hundreds of thousands of Algerians who were working in France and sending money home. This was a huge expatriate colony or a community of expatriates sending money back home to one side or the other, you know, because it was almost well, it was almost like a like a civil struggle among the uh, the insurgents as well. So the FLN, you know, they didn't have an absolute lock on things. So there are, you know, events in there that uh, where where they are susceptible, and there are a number of other events where uh, the, the the fractured nature of the FLN itself comes into play. So there are factions, you know, there are factional difficulties. Uh, the French manage to exploit these things, uh, these these you know these fractures within the movement uh, through you know one form or another psychological warfare. Uh, they managed to plant. There was one incident, you know, where they uh, planted a bunch of false information on a bunch of dead insurgents mm-hmm. that led the local um, insurgent leader to believe that he had double agents right. in his government yeah. or in his local network, yeah. his command network. So that started the purges and the killings. He killed mm-hmm. something between two and three thousand of his own people and pretty much dismantled, you know, the insurgent network in that area by the time mm-hmm. he was done. And the French didn't have to do a thing. They right. just they they just introduced this 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 these poison pen letters mm-hmm. uh, allowed them to be found and their own suspicion their own paranoia did them in yeah. so there there are reflections of things like that in the event uh, deck as well um, the other aspect of going from four factions to two factions is that the sequence of play the game mechanics have to change and I dithered on that for a long time I tried a lot of different methods. And in the end, with the help of my developer, Jordan Carer, mm-hmm. we came up with a really elegant, um, well, I think it's really elegant solution. And basically, it's very similar to what, uh, to the existing coin system where one side will pick a certain, uh, they'll pick an option, which is either a small bit of activity, you know, mm-hmm. like, like doing an event card or undertaking a very small operation in one area, or they do a larger amount of activity, like operations in multiple areas or an operation plus the special activity choice that they have from their menu of, of options. As long as you're doing small, uh, as long as you're doing these smaller bites of action, you maintain the initiative. So you're the one who gets to decide what happens next. However, mm-hmm. if you think the, the, what you should be doing with these small bites of action is not just hanging on to the initiative, but building towards a big thing so that when the time is right, you do a large or multiple activity or a special activity, Mm -hmm. um, which hopefully has, you know, quite the effect. But then you've kind of expended yourself. You shot your bolt. And now Mm -hmm. the 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 initiative will pass over to the other player who then repeats the process. This gets back to the idea I was talking about earlier in Go, where you have uh, the sente. So you're making these moves that the other guy, you're the one who gets to move first. The other guy is usually reacting to your move. But there comes a point when your sente kind of runs out, and there is a point when the initiative passes from your hands to the other player. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, something that I thought we modeled quite simply and elegantly uh, in this. um. So um, you listed off a number 
of other uh, coin games that are <laughs> under development right now. There are, yeah. I believe, eight or nine that are yes. uh, some stage of development or testing, uh, and there will be more. Uh, they are all four-faction games, uh, yes. except for this Colonial Twilight, which is the first. So I don't know if in doing this uh, I'm sort of opening things to a whole new range of two-player uh, coin system games. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that develops, because there's certainly a level of play that you don't get with two players that you do with four. Uh, a lot, so many people have spoken, you know, about the uh, the, the the sort of brain burning they do uh, in dealing with the other factions. In you know, this guy, you know, if you're if you're the coalition guy in a distant plane, the government's supposed to be your friend, but you don't really trust him. At the same time, you're the one who has the power to spend his money for him. Right. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't like you for that. He's got you know. So anyway, that sort of relationship people find quite interesting, and I've heard it characterized in a number of different ways. Some guy said it was like a, a bad marriage with a very large joint bank account. Hmm. Uh, another one said it's like two scorpions hitched to a wagon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, that's a, I thought that was very colorful. Yeah. But uh, it's a different, it's certainly it's a different take on the coin system. I don't want to see, you know, a plethora of, of two-player coin, uh, coin system games eclipsing the four-faction ones. Um, but you know, it's. I think it's variation that uh, that is is a good one. Are you planning on doing any more coin games, or are you uh, going to go back to your system or a in different system completely? What What are your plans after this? Oh, I'm doing both. Oh, okay. Um, I have uh, I have roughed in uh, a four faction coin system game called Thunder Out of China. Mm -hmm. It's on the uh, Sino Japanese War from 1937 to 1941. So oh, you've got okay. four factions. You've got the Japanese, <clears throat> who have some uh, collaborators with them. You have the Chinese Communists. Uh, mm -hmm. You have the KMT, which is like the KMT Central Army on mm -hmm. Chiang Kai shek. And yeah. then you have what I call the warlords, although they're not, they're sort of warlords, but they're also, they're more the regionally based other factions within the Chinese army. So they are sort of under the control most of the time of the central government, mm -hmm. but they do have their own agendas. Um, the Japanese, of course, the Japanese and uh, the communists have uh, their own agenda as well. Um, this is a game that I thought would be interesting for four passive-aggressive personalities to play because they... The, you have three anti-Japanese players and one Japanese player, but the three anti-Japanese players don't like each other much. They have different methods. They have different objectives. And so they want to help each other, you know, in the overall defense of China against Japan. Um, but they don't want to help each other too much or in the wrong way, because then they'll lose the game. So there's, I find this really interesting in games, the sort of uh, multiplayer games, is the tension between cooperation and competition. Um, there was a card game that I worked out a couple of years ago that's uh, about uh, power politics in a, uh, you know, in a generic Latin American country. Uh, it's not a, a standard board game, it's cards. Um, and in it, the, the players have a tension between cooperating with each other to solve crises that keep popping up, and yet they have to 
kind of compete with each other in building up different kinds of power bases in order to succeed uh, so that someone will come out on top. So this uh, China game is, is interesting in that aspect as well. Um, another thing that I find interesting about it is uh, the, uh, some people, a lot of people have said that the, the, the coin system games are, uh, they, there's a steep learning curve with them. And, and part of that learning curve for most of the coin system games published so far is the lines of communication, you know, that represent, you know, uh, pipelines or railways or roads or that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people, when they start in on playing these coin system games, they kind of ignore them. And, but someone who plays this game, that, that game system really well, knows how to exploit those lines of communication. In this China game, you, the, the lines of communication are very, very important for the Japanese uh, because that was the nature of their occupation. The historians have described the Japanese occupation of China as kind of a dot and line occupation because what they went for was the cities, which is where the industry and the, and the material and the people were, and the railroads that connected the cities, and of course the Yangtze River. Um, but anything more than a few miles away from a railroad or from the Yangtze River, they weren't really concerned with. But that was the great majority of China. So that's how you kind of model this kind of thing in the coin system. So I, th I thought that was an interesting variation to work on it as well. Okay. What else are you doing? That uh, So that's a coin game. Are you doing a game of your, uh, of your own design? I mean, your own system, I mean? Well, I, I don't, uh, I've got, uh, depending on how you count, I've got almost a dozen things okay. on, uh, on my plate right now. Um, I'm doing a couple of revisions of uh, earlier designs. Uh, we spent a lot of time, you know, in our talk here, talking about um, the original Algeria game that came out in 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you have helped me, uh, with um, the redesign of Algeria. So I anticipate that that will be coming out next year with uh, One Small Step Games as a folio game. Yeah, full, full disclosure for our listeners. Yes, I have uh, I've played uh, Brian's uh, redesign of Algeria. I've helped him with – I, I uh, got a playtest kit from him. Uh, I played it both solitaire and against uh, live opponents. So, yes, that and I, it's looking good. So I'm very excited about that. That will be out, uh, you said, next year? Yeah, uh, it probably it'll be out in the next batch of folio games from One Small Step. Okay. Um, one small step will also be doing a Vietnam game of mine called Din Din. Okay. And it's uh, the um, the counter counterinsurgency campaign in Binh Din province, in the central coast of Vietnam in 1969. Um, that's uh, a game that originally I designed for a history professor uh, at a university in Ontario who wanted really? to use games uh, for in, in his class. Hmm. Um, so he first contacted me wanting to get a copy of my Green Beret game, which is about uh, Green Berets in the Central Highlands of Vietnam in 1963. And I said, well, that's probably a little bit involved for your, your kids. Um, <laughs> and, well, okay, they're 20-year-old 20 20 yeah. kids, but, you know, people without an awful lot of exposure to, you know, uh, board war games. So I designed something for him that was uh, quite a bit simpler and faster, and his personal research uh, happened to be on Binh Dinh province, uh, hmm. and so and the Vietnamese National Police Force there. So he sent me some of his research, and I built that up into a, a game, and he used it in his class. And um, I think it uh, makes a good candidate for a, a simpler and fast uh, folio game on Vietnam uh, that stresses 
the pacification, not the big battles, but the sort of pacification and, um, you know, that, that, that end of things uh, in Vietnam, which isn't always touched on in, in Vietnam games. A lot of Vietnam games tend to focus on the big battles. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you ever? Go sorry. ahead. Uh, and I'm doing a revision of a bulge game uh, that I did uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, that will be coming out uh, before very long. Um, I, there's a number of games that I've mentioned uh, that will be coming out through uh, BTR Games, uh, which is my own little DTP outfit. Um, some of those games have been picked up by other outfits later, but for the time being, they'll be self-published and you know made available by you know through me from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when I'm done with the testing and the artwork. Uh, Ioka is one of them. Uh, Balkan Gamble is another one. That's about uh, uh, Allied invasions of the Mediterranean that weren't. <laughs> um, okay. And uh, I have other. I have a, a series of games. In another system, I have yet another coin system that I've devised called the District Commander System. Mm. This Tell me is, about that. I'm sorry? Tell me about that. That's interesting. Uh, this is something I came up with a couple of years ago, and it is interesting in that it's diceless. You have, uh, you have two players. You have the government. You have the insurgent, although you have other factions as well that can enter. Uh, you can have, like, uh, um, non-state militias you know, which are sort of like private armies that are not under, you know, they're, they're against the, the, the insurgents, but they're not under control of the government. You can have organized crime, uh, you know, so these people are you have yet another agenda, and they're not under anyone's, any player's control and so forth. Um, so there's that, and then this is one, the district commander system is one that it, de- it derives from... I was talking earlier about the, the difference between non-kinetic and kinetic actions. Yes. Uh, and so there are different menus of non-kinetic and kinetic actions that both sides can take. Uh, so for non-kinetic, that's things like building up, um, you know, social infrastructure in an area. So for the government, that means one thing. That means digging wells and uh, making sure there's enough tax collectors and things like that. For the insurgent, building up social infrastructure means things like, you know, setting up the insurgent equivalent of a a food bank, you know, or a a small network of informers, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, And so that's an example of sort of like a non-kinetic thing. It's kind of the kind of uh, organizing that you're, you know, and and building up for the fight. Um, And then uh, you have kinetic actions, which are, you know, ambushes and uh, sweeps and, uh, you know, those sorts of, you know, more standard military things. Uh, And then you have a a form of intelligence work as well, where you're trying to find out where the enemy is, what he's doing, these kinds of things. So there's a system of chits, like dice are replaced by chits that have different qualities for different types of activities that you want to do. Uh, So that's where people choose. Like in the beginning of a turn, you get a random selection of these chits. But during the turn, you have a choice as to which chits you apply to what. So if you're going to do something that requires a chit to be especially strong to improve your, your, your odds in one particular thing, um, then you pick that one. However, it might be really good for another function which you need to expend in order to defend yourself against this guy who's doing a kinetic action against you, and so on and so forth. So that is something that I've 
devised a number of modules for um, where they're more or less the same game system, but there are different variations. So I've done sort of a red versus blue generic one that was a test bed. But I've also worked on ones for Algeria, um, Vietnam, and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I'll probably be working on an Iraq one in the future in my copious spare time. <laughs> uh, and I haven't really, I haven't found a, a pub, an outside publisher for those yet. So I think when the time comes, this is something I'll make available uh, self-published. But that's something I've been working on for the last year or two. And I think it's quite interesting because it's a different, a very different approach from this four-box operation system, but it still reflects the, the really wide variety of actions that either side can take in the course of, of, uh, of an asymmetric conflict. And each side has different methods. They have different missions they can do. They have different strengths uh, that are also built into the game mechanics and uh, different ways to exploit uh, the, hmm. you know, the weaknesses of the other. Hmm. I'll be very interested to play that. Um, so that'll be self-published. Have you done any? Have you thought of doing anything about the Malayan emergency? That's the one that I never see ever get uh, modeled. Yeah, nobody's ever done one on that. And the only thing that's holding me back on that is the time needed to do the research on it, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, just to sit down and, and get the work done. Um, I have all these other things to do. And of course, I have a you know I have a day job and a family and yeah. all this other yeah. stuff yeah. that of course you know that you have mm -hmm. to take care of. Um, but it's certainly it's something that I want to do uh, in in future. Uh, again, I think that would be something that would probably be uh, better suited to two players than mm -hmm. multiple players. Yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of very interesting aspects in that uh, in that particular uh, conflict that really kind of. Um, they, they really kind of guided a lot of the directions that counterinsurgency went in years after. Uh, an example would be the whole idea of strategic hamlets. Yes. Uh, I mean, the British were the first to do this kind of thing in the Boer War in 1902, the Second Boer War, when they started uprooting Boer settlers uh, from the countryside and herding them into concentration camps. Uh, the Germans did that later in uh, southwest Africa, which is now called Namibia, when they were uh, fighting uh, just a few years later, putting down a, an uprising among a group of tribes called the Herero. Mm -hmm. They had their own little concentration camps going there. Uh, and that kind of carried on throughout the interwar period, the Second World War, of course. Uh, and then, you know, they kind of went at it, you know, I guess in a somewhat more scientific way in Malaya as a way of uh, denying um, recruits and food to, yeah. the, uh, to, the, to the terrorists. My understanding is it worked in Malaya, actually, that it, uh, uh, with that particular situation, it was better suited. It worked in Malaya, but that wasn't the only reason why the British were able to defeat the insurgency in Malaya. Mm -hmm. I think the major factor was, or one, uh, maybe not the major factor, but certainly a very large factor in the defeat was that the t terrorists were ethnically distinct from the Malayans. They were mostly mm -hmm. ethnic Chinese. Yeah. And so socially and ethnically, they were outsiders among the population. There mm -hmm. were a lot of ethnic Chinese in Malaya, but they weren't distributed in a way that was useful to, to the terrorists. And as 
the the business of, of re, resettling the population went on. They were driven further and further back into the jungles where there was nobody to recruit, there was nothing to eat, and in the end, that's that's what stopped it. Yeah. But it was the it was the apparent success of the strategic Hamlet program that led them to apply it just a few years later in Vietnam, mm -hmm. where it fell flat on its ass. Right. Because basically the situation, it was the same tactic, but in a situation completely different and applied incompetently in such a way that it was almost bound to fail. Uh, but again, that was something that they that they tried uh, and they kept on trying it for a while in, in the first years. Uh, and again, this is something that they worked in um, in Algeria uh, because the French, in the end, they displaced close to two million people, uh, of the, which is almost a quarter of the Muslim population of Algeria, forced them off their land and out of their villages and into uh, government-run concentration camps or secure areas, which is something that I've modeled, as you know, in my Algeria yep. game, but it's, it's also modeled in Colonial Twilight as well. Okay, yeah. Have you um, have you played any other games about... There's, I guess there aren't that many games about Algeria. Have you... Have you uh... There Have are, you run across many? There are three games about Algeria, and two of them are mine. <laughs> so the so the only one other one you're saying is Kim Conger's. Uh, yep, that's game. the only one there is. Wow. Uh, and I have uh, I, I I don't own a copy myself, uh -huh. Uh -huh. but I've I've studied through the rules uh -huh. and I've talked with Kim a couple of times. Um, uh -huh. You know, just a you know friendly email back and forth. Yep. Um, I, we're it's obvious we had you know, very different ideas about how to portray the conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, with Kim's game, my impression is that it's something I, I don't want to say scripted because mm -hmm. it's not really, mm -hmm. but there, it's something that's definitely more closely wedded to the historical sequence of events than yes. either of my games, Algeria or Colonial Twilight mm -hmm. are. Yeah. Um, so he has a, he has um, a, a system where the game proceeds from year to year, and as each year uh, each new year opens, there's another um, you know set of chits become available, right. and of course you can alter you know your actions in the game alter what happens and doesn't happen mm -hmm. uh, because the attitude of the PNR is really important. You know it's right. it's um, it's quite important in, in his game. As a, as a sort of catalyst for the French government to do or not do things. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, I think it's just an example of two very different approaches to yes, modeling the I, same war. I and agree with that. Every game has its own inter internal logic, and both, to, in my view, both internal logics work quite well, but in different mm -hmm. ways. Yes, I, I would definitely agree with that. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, about asymmetric warfare. It's been fascinating. I'm really excited to um, to play Colonial Twilight. I'm also excited to see um, to see Algeria come out as an actual printed game, um, since uh, I'm currently using the um, the painstakingly pasted and cut counters that uh, I printed out. Uh, that you sent me, um, but uh, but all these, I, I I really like the system. I think it's a really it's a really it's it's such a unique system uh, as far as games go in in um, in allowing you to within the framework. It's like coin, but um, but the the way that you can 
have the uh, government units and the insurgent units interact from the various boxes. You can you can sort of change the rules subtly, the way the intelligence works. Um, the, the missions that are available to the insurgent player can change. Um, so many things you can you can model around in a, a basic mechanic, but still make the games very different. So I, I, I really enjoy that about your games. Um, so I hope that we can, uh, I'd love to continue our conversation uh, when um, Colonial Twilight comes out or Algeria comes out. So we'll have a uh, maybe get some uh, some of my colleagues here at Three Moves Ahead to try the games, and then uh, we can uh, talk again. I think that would be a lot of fun. That'd be fine. And thank you so much for your, your support, Bruce, and thanks so much for inviting me to talk with you today. All right. Well, thank you, Brian, and uh, everybody. We'll be back next week.